back. Hope you've all been well. It's almost September. I cannot believe it. Where did the summer go? All of those temperatures definitely still feels like summertime. Um, so I've had a few people reach out to me since the last episode to tell me their stories and how my posts and episodes have been helping them through their abuse recovery. I can't tell you how happy this makes me. All I've ever wanted to do when making this podcast and working as a domestic abuse spokesperson with the Allstate Foundation is to help even just one person by telling my story and the stories of other survivors. So as always, if you ever want to discuss anything or you need help or advice, my social media channels are always open to you at Mangogs or at IPVME. All the links are in the bio. They will always be anonymous unless you would like to have your story mentioned here. And if you would like to be interviewed for the podcast or have me tell your story for you, again, reach out to me. So I've had a crazy few weeks. My mental and physical health hasn't been the greatest this whole year. But I felt like I was declining a little bit in the last few weeks. I've just felt like my head has been really cloudy, if that makes any sense. So I've always known I've had anxiety and OCD, but never really got any type of therapy or medication for it. I always felt like I've been able to manage it myself through various things like meditation. I read a lot of books on the topic, which has always helped, but nothing seems to be working lately. And I just couldn't get out of this funk. So I spoke to a professional and was again diagnosed with OCD and anxiety and I'm about to start my first round of medication for that. I'm already feeling better at just knowing that I've made the step to get some help. I'm definitely a little nervous about taking that type of medication but I'm just going to be open to it and hope that it works for me. So I just wanted to speak about that briefly because I feel like it's important to be open to discussion about these things. It really helps to feel like you're not alone in these situations. And also, obviously, the topic that I discuss on here is pretty heavy. And, you know, if you're someone that's listening to this podcast, then obviously you're either going through it yourself, you've been through it, or, you know, maybe you're just curious about the topic. Maybe you have a friend or family member who's going through it. So... I think it's important in these situations, to be honest. Um, So I've just basically been at home, mostly in bed, just reading a lot, watching a lot of TV to try and just get me through this funk. Um, My favourite show, Better Call Saul, ended last week, which I'm really sad is over, but it was the most perfect ending to a truly perfect show. I don't think I have one fault about the whole six seasons of it. Just genius TV. I was a little meh about getting back to the Game of Thrones world again. Um, It just seems like it's been very soon. I think there's so many prequels nowadays that I'm just like, oh, do we really need more? Like if it works really well in one show, um, I think it's pretty rare that prequels work. I think Better Call Saul was an exception to that. Also, that Game of Thrones ending, I'm still so salty about it. So I was like, oh, don't want to do this again. But I said I'd try The House of the Dragon anyways, and I'm so glad I did because only two episodes in, I'm absolutely loving it. I'm obsessed with Rhaenyra. She's such a badass, so damn cool. Also, if you know me, you know I love some trashy reality TV, so I was really excited that they released Selling the OC, which is a spin-off of Selling Sunset, one of my favorite reality shows. It's already super dramatic after one episode, so I am so here for it. I've also read some amazing books in the last few weeks. I post a lot of book reviews on my, particularly my TikTok, um, also my Instagram. So if you're a bookworm like me, feel free to follow me on there. I love discussing books. 
Um, I'll leave the link to my Goodreads and all of that other stuff uh, in the link tree in my bio. Also, I've added a lot of new streaming sites for this podcast. Um, I, again, will, if you go to my link tree and you'll see the rss.com feed, uh, click into that and then it'll give you a list of all of the sites where you can listen to the podcast for free. Um, I'm really excited about that. I've already had some extra listeners on these other platforms so that's really cool to know that the podcast is reaching people that it wasn't previously um I looked at my figures recently and I'm honestly so shocked that so many people are listening to the show it really just blows my mind um I try not to think about it too much because I feel like when I know people are listening to me it scares me so much more whereas I kind of just like to think that I'm just talking to myself and then that kind of makes me feel a little bit better so anyways on to today's episode which is the second half of the story of Taylor Armstrong so where we had left off uh Taylor had just been in the middle of a super intense physical fight with her husband Russell and their friends Mark and Jennifer So she's now on edge because she knows she can't deny his behavior any longer to her friends. She's losing friendships because of him. Her friends are now getting involved and getting hurt because of him. So let's get into it. I also just want to have a trigger warning because this gets very, very, very dark in the second half. And there is mention of suicide, which may be very triggering to some people. So just be aware of that. Every few months, Taylor would get a call from the Real Housewives producers. If she were cast, she figured that having her life on camera would encourage Russell to control his temper and therefore help their relationship. But even if she had to leave and divorce him, being on the show would mean she had a job and could take care of her and her daughter. So here she is already seeking a way out without even knowing that she is. I used to go about things and then say that the added bonus was, oh, but then that'll mean I'll have extra money if I need it. Things like getting a promotion wasn't just, oh, this is great for my career. Um, It was great. I can have extra money if I need to leave and things like I'll save this website of apartment listings in case I ever need it. You're always thinking about leaving without even really realizing that you are. Agreeing to live in front of cameras was a big decision. Her friend Adrian was also being interviewed for the show, so they began having coffee together to talk about it. Adrian knew about the troubles in her marriage. She said she thought it would be good for Taylor because she would have a means of taking care of Kennedy. Russell had begun threatening to get her to take a polygraph test. She kept refusing and he would say that if she had nothing to hide, she wouldn't feel the need not to take one. She began to see there could be an advantage to it though. Maybe after the test proved she didn't do any of the things he would accuse her of, he would finally stop the delusions he had for years been accusing her of and she'd never ever have to hear about them again. So she agreed to take one in November 2009. She hadn't counted on how humiliating it would be for her. Russell was standing in the corner staring at her while she did it. Her heart was pounding as the examiner asked her humiliating questions like, had she ever had sex with the NBA player? Had she had sex with the athlete? Was a scab on her back caused by something sexual? Had she ever had sex with anyone other than Russell during the course of their marriage? The test indicated that there was no deception. Russell had the results reviewed by a second examiner. He also agreed she was truthful. Taylor was relieved yet humiliated and felt filthy. Russell never apologised but thanked her for doing it for him. Within the month he had started accusing her of faking the polygraph, that she had paid off the examiner or knew how to trick the machine. 
She knew by this point she didn't have the strength to just get up and leave him. Something bad or good needed to happen to make her leave. Again, as I've mentioned before, this is exactly what happened to me. After 10 months of waiting, she got the call that she was cast on Real Housewives. At first, Russell didn't want her to do it, but changed his mind a few days later and gave her his permission. It was hard to believe that someone with as many secrets as Russell would agree to do a reality show, but Taylor thinks it was his extreme narcissism that made him agree. I also agree with this. He thought everyone loved him. He thought this would be an even greater platform for people to love him. He believed he could fool the cameras like he fooled everyone else in his life. Taylor was excited to learn who her new castmates were. Her friend Adrian had been cast, along with Elisa Vanderpump, Camille Grammer, Kyle Richards and her sister Kim. They were all people she had friends in common with and she felt very positive about the whole thing. In March 2010, the cameras started rolling. They were on them pretty much constantly until that October. Taylor thought the show captured the overall essence of who they were as individuals and what their lives were like during that first year. After four years of Russell monitoring her behaviour, she felt like a Stepford wife. People began telling her she was like two different people depending on whether Russell was there. His behaviour toward her was beginning to take its toll even when he wasn't present. Her anxiety was so high and she had trouble gaining weight. Even though Russell often told her she was too skinny and it was disgusting and often made her change her outfit if it made her look too thin and even though she ate, her system was under so much stress she couldn't seem to do anything about it. Sometimes she couldn't eat because she had no appetite. Her heart was always racing, her stomach always in knots. Russell never felt comfortable in front of the cameras and his personality didn't show through because of this. He wasn't liked by the viewers. People they knew also had begun to talk. Enough incidents had happened that they knew there was at least verbal abuse happening. It's really a shock when you realise that everything you tried so well to cover and thought you had been successful at was actually not working and everyone in your life knew that there was trouble. Taylor felt that having five strong personalities around her while filming for Housewives made her grow stronger. It made her realise she didn't need to be a people pleaser. She now understood that standing up for herself and speaking her mind in the moment was how she was going to treat people how she wanted to be treated. It was a big catalyst for her to take a more honest look at her relationship with Russell. She was interacting with other married women and seeing what their relationships were like. At first the changes were small. After another night where he left her at a social event, instead of going home to face more abuse, she instead went to Lisa Vanderpump's restaurant, Sir. Lisa was having dinner there with Kyle. She walked in crying. The producers of the show were also there. There was no hiding how upset she was. Another night she was out with Lisa and received a text from Russell saying, fuck you, you whore. She teared up. Lisa asked what was wrong and she showed her, that's unacceptable, Lisa said, disgusted. If anyone watches Housewives or Vanderpump Rules, you know that Lisa and her husband Ken have the utmost respect for each other. They've been married for decades and to me have the most solid relationship of any couple I've seen. I can only imagine how sickened she would have been by this. She's definitely a good person to have on your side. Taylor said she had never thought about it that way before. Lisa told her she had to get out of this because every time I see you, you're crying, you're losing too much weight, you're clearly not handling the situation well. After that, Lisa's behaviour told Russell cooled significantly. He was very aware of this and immediately suspected why. Another time, Taylor was at Lisa's house for a shoot and asked her if her husband Ken ever checked her phone. Lisa said she would leave her husband if he ever went through her phone. Taylor was genuinely surprised. It hit her that Lisa's response wasn't about the information on her phone, but about the fact that checking her phone was disrespectful. 
she wouldn't have tolerated this treatment. In October 2010, the show first aired, she immediately felt uncomfortable with how she appeared. She didn't realise until that moment how much she had changed by her marriage. She saw her Stepford wife behaviour. She saw the obvious differences between her relationship and that of her co-stars. She witnessed her inability to stand her ground and speak up for herself. She hated herself as much as the people tweeting about her did. The one upside to this was that she knew Russell could also see the differences. She had high hopes this would be a revelation for him. So even after all these years and the bad behaviour and the advice from her friends, Taylor is still hopeful that this man can change. It is such a vicious cycle. She began reading the press surrounding the show and realised how superficial she was coming across. She knew it was her own fault as she didn't have the confidence to think that people could like the person she really was. One of the hardest aspects of the coverage was the scrutiny and ridicule she received regarding her plastic surgery. After a while, she just stopped reading it. It must have been so horrible for her. Like, imagine you already feel like this about yourself. Your husband has also been confirming this and now the whole world is taking you apart. Of course you would only believe this was true when you're hearing it from basically all angles. She must have felt so bad about herself. I feel awful for her having to go through this when her personal life is already so full of turmoil and chaos. Russell, on the other hand, was obsessed with any mentions of him. He was quick to believe the good and anything negative was enough to consume his thoughts completely. Classic narcissist. He even signed up for Google alerts about himself and Taylor. Two men claimed they had dated her in high school. This was the worst trigger for his jealousy and he grilled her incessantly about it. He loved the attention on himself, but it didn't last long when his bankruptcy issues came to light. He was embarrassed and worried it would hurt his ability to attract clients but the only emotion he expressed about it was anger. When Taylor would wake up, the first thing she would see was Russell on his Blackberry reading all the Google alerts. It became a major source of stress as it was rarely positive. When he was in a bad mood, it was bad for everyone around him also. Even if Kennedy was grouchy, he would take it out on Taylor saying she was a bad mother for not getting her to bed on time. Even people at his office were aware how much it was affecting him. They told Taylor his Google alerts obsession was consuming him. More and more skeletons were coming out of Russell's closet. At the time, Taylor had no idea how much he was hiding. Reports surfaced about past litigations, a past security fraud, his prosecution for tax evasion, including the penalty he paid and the 150 hours of community service he completed, his arrest for domestic violence with his first wife. He had told Taylor this charge was a misunderstanding and that she had attacked him and he was defending himself. Once her court testimony was all over the internet, it became evident the truth was much closer to the kind of abuse Taylor had been experiencing. There was also a statement from a former girlfriend who had a less violent but similar tale to tell. Taylor was horrified to realise her husband had a long history of domestic violence. Russell, on the other hand, was more concerned by the bad press about his financial dealings. He was mortified to think anyone would think he was anything other than honest. At one point, he confessed the prospective clients were starting to ask him about these stories. As the image he had so carefully constructed began to unravel, so too did Russell. He thought that he would be able to control the whole world as he did Taylor, but this was clearly not the case. He became increasingly volatile and difficult to live with. In January 2011, Taylor hired her high school cheerleading coach's daughter Julie as a PA. She moved into their home and it didn't take long for her to witness Russell's behaviour. After these events, he would go to Julie's room the next morning and apologise. She always acted like it was no big deal, but her loyalties were very much with Taylor. Note here how he will apologise to another person about his abusive behaviour, but not to Taylor herself. 
trying to do damage control so other people don't think that he's anything other than perfect. Taylor later learned that when they would get home at night, Julie would lay awake to listen and if she heard Russell screaming, she would come out of her room and wait until she heard Taylor's voice and knew she wasn't hurt. Sometimes when things were particularly bad, she would send their dog upstairs so she had an excuse to come up and get him. While she would be apologising to them for letting him get out, she was really checking to see if Taylor was okay. Unfortunately, Russell's moods were becoming so volatile that he was no longer able to control his temper in front of witnesses. They travelled to Dallas for the Super Bowl that year with one of Russell's oldest friends and his wife and family. They had several appearances scheduled before the game. A group gathered around Taylor asking for pictures. She could tell Russell was agitated. He was always fine with people wanting pictures with both of them, but would be annoyed if it was just Taylor they wanted. While she wanted to keep him happy, she also didn't want to be rude to the show's fans. When a woman approached her with a gift, it was the final straw. I'm going to go sit down. You can find your own way to your seat, he snapped. After the game, they went to a restaurant. As they got settled, three young women approached the table to get Taylor's picture. They were a bit boisterous, but were nice and having a great time. Taylor noticed Russell was missing from the table. When he came back and she was still posing for pictures, Russell glowered at her. Before she could sit back down, Russell grabbed her arm, yanked her over to a service door and pushed her inside. They were at the top of the staff staircase. He hit her twice in the jaw with his open hand. He screamed that she was embarrassing him and his friends and she was being rude. She cried and ran down the stairs to compose herself. When she came back to the table, a woman at another table asked if she was okay. They talked for a few minutes while Russell, Russell watched her. She insisted on giving Taylor her number and said if she ever needed anything to call her. When they got back to Russell's friend's house, she went into his daughter's room who was there talking to her friend. Then his wife came in and they all sat talking. Taylor kept tearing up as she told him about her situation. She told him he got physical at times. When Russell came in and saw her crying, he was furious. Oh, here she goes again, crying to everyone. Then walked away. She stayed in the room for an hour, hoping Russell would be asleep. He came to get her soon after. He told her she needed to come to bed now. She felt a certain level of protection because they were in someone else's house, but she could tell he was in a dark mood. She went to the bathroom to get ready for bed. He came flying in and spun her around and started hitting her in the jaw again. After several blows, something snapped. The pain was excruciating and she couldn't shut her mouth. He had knocked her jaw out of the socket, but he kept hitting her. She put her hands up to shield her face and fell to the floor. Saliva was running down her face. She panicked, thinking she was going to have to call an ambulance because she was really hurt. She worried that they would make her file a police report. She didn't want him to go to jail. He told her she was overreacting and told her to go run and tell everyone, call her friends and tell everyone he hit her again. Go make a big deal about this. She said she needed help because she was really hurt. She could barely speak. He taunted her about calling an ambulance so she could make a big deal out of it. Finally, she got up and lied down in bed. She tried to ignore the pain. She knew she needed a doctor but was too scared of Russell going to jail. She was also embarrassed because of where they were. Finally, she was able to pop her jaw back in place. He lay down next to her and told her to relax, that she'd feel better in the morning. She had to sleep on her back for the next few nights and eat carefully, but she never saw a doctor. She thought it had healed itself, but she still now to this day gets shooting pain time to time when eating. Even after they got home, Russell continued to blame her for the evening. He said he was done, he was out of here, that he was going to be moving tomorrow morning. In the past, when he had threatened to leave, she had begged him to stay, but the severity of her injury had changed things. The violence of it and the fact that it happened around other people really scared her. She didn't want him to go to jail, but she also didn't want to live like that anymore. 
She knew she had to get out because he had gone way too far this time. So she agreed it was for the best and he started looking for places online. She had lunch with Camille later and told her what had happened. She was horrified. She said she actually finally seemed ready to leave him. She said she thought she was too. Camille was incredibly supportive and reassuring, but as much as Taylor seemed resolved to leave him, she really didn't want him to move out. She said, I know it's hard for people who haven't experienced abuse to understand, but even with how he had degraded me and hurt me emotionally and physically, I still didn't want to live without him. I still loved him. And even more than that, I had become addicted to the cycle of violence in which we had lived for so long. When she got home, she saw that instead of moving out, Russell had gone to the office and he came home later that night. She was relieved she hadn't lost him, but was finally convinced that something had to change in their marriage once and for all. Taylor had always been able to partly justify her inability to leave this marriage with the fact that Russell never exhibited the worst of his anger in front of Kennedy. She still thought it was better for her to live with an imperfect father than no father at all. She later found out in Russell's ex-wife's court filings that someone had seen Russell slapping his son. Kennedy was just turning five and was beginning to exhibit signs that the abuse was starting to affect her. When Taylor and Russell would be talking alone, she would come in and sit on her lap or stand there with her arms crossed, staring at them and refusing to leave them alone. After the jaw incident, Russell finally agreed to accompany her to therapy. She feared he would try to manipulate the therapist, as he did everyone. She was afraid to speak her mind in front of Russell, but since their doctor knew the reason for her silence. Russell, as usual, blamed everything on Taylor. She didn't call me when she was supposed to. She was supposed to be home at 11.30, but she wasn't home till 12.30. Their doctor knew just by their body language that there was abuse and soon Taylor began having private sessions with him. Their doctor told him that they had to call in the moment tensions started to rise with them. Taylor should go to one room and Russell another and they would each get their turn to talk to him. They also had to only talk about their problems within the confines of his office. He texted them both frequently. He also recommended Russell go on medication. Taylor thought this could be their saving grace, but the doctor cautioned that it could take several weeks for the medicine to have any noticeable effect. After taking his first pill, right away, Russell said he felt different. This is amazing. I feel like nothing could bother me today. I believe here that he is lying to and manipulating her because he doesn't really want to take medication. I don't even know if he actually was taking it. Probably was lying. Um, people like that usually think that they're above any medication because he's a narcissist he thinks he's perfect taylor didn't buy it either she called the doctor who said this usually only happens in patients with severe chemical imbalances in their brain taylor worried what would happen if he missed a dose what if he decided to stop taking it and flew into another rage taylor herself was also diagnosed with ptsd she couldn't believe it despite everything she'd been through despite the renewed calm at home and while filming had begun on season two of housewives others didn't believe things had changed the last time she had seen Camille was the conversation after the jawbreaking and her saying she was leaving. Now Camille saw her behaving like a Stepford wife again. This confused her. She was frustrated. At a tea party, Camille finally boiled over. He hits you, she burst out. For anyone who watches Housewives, you will know this is an iconic moment in the history of the show and so so shocking you should definitely look it up if you haven't seen it before i will try and link it in the bio of the episode also taylor began to panic her chest pounding the secret was out she still wasn't ready to leave what would people think she knew something bad was going to happen and that russell wouldn't be happy she wasn't surprised it had come to this her friends were starting to doubt and give up on her they'd all concluded that she wasn't going to leave russell 
At times she was distraught at what she felt was judgment, but she now knows how frustrating it must have been. She now understands how impossible it is for anyone who hasn't experienced abuse to comprehend how incredibly complicated the dynamic between the abuser and the abused really is. She had made a pact with Russell that she would keep their issues within the confines of their therapy sessions. Her friends didn't believe for a minute that things were better, especially after only a couple of months of therapy. They were fed up with her confessing all of the awful things that were happening, but then having to listen to her excuse away the abuse when they later reconciled. They had long ago lost respect for Russell and now they were beginning to lose respect for Taylor too. She was also unreliable. She cancelled dinner plans at the last minute because Russell had gotten pissed off about something. She was pressured to find a solution to keep everyone happy. But in some ways their marriage actually was better than it had ever been. It helps that Russell was opening up during their therapy sessions. She saw he did have a sensitive side. He talked about how his childhood affected him. She saw the pain he had experienced and the vulnerabilities it had created in him. She realised that she had no idea who her husband really was. I personally find this hard to swallow. I don't care how bad of a childhood you had. It doesn't mean you need to be abusive in your adult life. My ex would constantly blame his bad relationship with his mother for his behaviour, but I saw it as an excuse. Lots of people have had childhoods far more traumatic and never harm anyone or use it as an excuse for their behaviour. I hate when people do this. It's just to me an excuse to behave badly and not apologise for it. He said to her once again that if they had 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 therapy six years ago, they would never be in this place. Again, I don't buy this. But Taylor was glad he had acknowledged that their therapy was necessary and might do them good. Their doctor also encouraged them to be more affectionate with each other to create closeness. Russell would start holding her hand, but it was so awkward that he would let go again. But Russell was also not happy with how the medication was making him feel numb and he worried it took away his edge. He felt his aggressive personality was necessary in his business. During a fight that spring, he again said he was leaving. Instead of begging him, Taylor did what their doctor had talked about, to not let Russell make it her fault he was leaving. She had to make him take responsibility for his own words. If you want to leave, that's your decision. I'm not going to stop you. I don't want you to leave, but if you need to leave for you, then you should go ahead. Her logical reaction deflated his power and shifted the balance between them to a more equal place. She was stunned by the fact that it was possible to stand up for herself. When she found her voice, it didn't go unnoticed by Russell. One day she said, you're not going to treat me like this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. He said, like what? His voice full of anger. She described what she didn't like about his behaviour the night before, which was something she had never done. Now he was really mad. It's your fault. If you didn't do things to make me so mad, these kinds of things wouldn't happen. She said they needed to get the doctor on the phone. Russell angrily stated one of his favourite things to say, I'm driving this bus. Taylor said she needed 50-50, that she was a mess of anxiety and couldn't gain weight. He looked at her in disbelief. She said, I have a voice now. Yeah, you found your voice and I'm not sure I like it, he replied with a little smirk. She started to laugh and he did too. The anger instantly evaporated. She thinks now that Russell was deeply threatened by the shift in their relationship. He felt himself starting to lose control over her. Even little things like choosing what she wanted to eat instead of letting him choose for her. She didn't think he knew how to be with her anymore. His rage began to escalate and because she now called him out on his behaviour, he just grew more angry. In these months, the medication only did so much. I remember this for me also. Once I realised the behaviour was abuse and that I didn't deserve it, he didn't know what to do when my reactions were in complete devastation and upset like they had usually been. 
That spring, Russell ended up twice crossing a line that Taylor had always said would be a deal breaker. The first time, Taylor had been home while Russell was out for dinner. Kennedy had fallen asleep in their bedroom. They were both awoken by Russell storming in, screaming, Fuck you, get the fuck out of my life. Kennedy looked at her, clearly frightened. Russell started screaming at her, Your mom's a whore, your mom's a bitch. Kennedy started crying hysterically, so did Taylor, but she was also mad. She begged Russell not to do this in front of their daughter. He got right in her face and said it was her fault. Then he turned back to Kennedy and said, it's your mom's fault. You need to know your mom is a whore and a bitch. He wouldn't stop. She picked up Kennedy and took her to her room. She kept saying, daddy's mean. Taylor didn't want her to dislike her father, but she also didn't want her to believe that his behavior was acceptable. She held her close until she calmed and fell asleep. Taylor kept one eye on the door in case Russell came in. After that, Kennedy was even more determined to be around during Taylor and Russell's interactions. On several occasions, she said, Mommy, are you going to cry again today? This made Taylor feel awful. At this point in time, Taylor was under immense pressure trying to keep the abuse out of the public eye. She eventually had a nervous breakdown in front of the cameras. This is shown in Season 2, Episode 3. The six of the girls had gone to Vail for a ski trip to Camille's house. Kyle and Taylor were in the hot tub and ended up having an intense heart-to-heart. The combination of the altitude, the wine, the hot tub, the fact she hadn't really eaten and had spent all day skiing was too much for her, along with all of the emotions she was trying to keep just under the surface. She started to feel scared and disoriented. She tried to hide from the cameras, even climbing into a suitcase to hide herself. She knew something was wrong. Adrian told her she was having a breakdown. Eventually, she managed to calm down. At this time, Russell's business life seemed increasingly tenuous, but he would never be honest about their financial situation. Taylor always figured they still had the 14 million trust to fall back on, the one he had always promised was in place. They did still have some genuinely happy moments around this time, and their couple's therapy seemed to be going well. Taylor still had hope. Russell complained that they weren't being intimate enough, and so Taylor bought some new laundry, and they ended up one night smoking pot together. When they were high, he became the man she'd fallen in love with, sweet, affectionate and loving. They smoked together a handful of times after that and the sex was amazing. When they were high, Russell wasn't scary. He was trying everything to calm his demons. Taylor appreciated the effort and enjoyed feeling close to him. They obviously couldn't be high all the time, however. It was going to take a lot more than that. I shouldn't even need to point out that having to get high in order for your husband to be nice and not scary isn't normal. When she says he became the man she fell in love with, this isn't true either, as he was never that man, not really. In a second effort to save their sex life and marriage, Taylor decided to get hormone replacement therapy. Russell had told her many times it wasn't normal for her to not have a sex drive. So again, he's blaming her now for not having a sex drive when it is his behaviour which is making her not want to have sex with him. Not to mention the fact that he has raped her several times previously. So she's having to now put her body through unnecessary procedures to appease him yet again. A few weeks in, she was telling her friend Sharon about the therapy. She looked at her in surprise. It's not your hormones, it's that you don't like him. When are you going to get it? That June was Taylor's 40th birthday. She had planned a big night out with friends. The night before, Russell and her attended a fashion show at Adrian's house, which was being filmed. The producers had reserved seats for the housewives up front with the husbands having to figure it out themselves. Russell, of course, felt like Taylor wasn't giving him enough attention. As soon as they left, he started in on her. You humiliated me. You didn't sit by me. You were trying to embarrass me. When midnight came around, he sneered at her. Happy birthday, asshole. Fuck you, you psychotic bitch. He had that familiar blank stare. The next day, she flew with Lisa to Las Vegas to tape 
them attending Lisa's daughter's bachelorette. Russell called her, but she didn't answer. She did text him later on saying she loved him. They're fine. She's just working. She kept thinking about the fact that for the rest of her life, his insults would always be her first memory of her 40th birthday. Part of the bachelorette was in a casino with the Chippendales. Russell had teased her earlier in the week about her new oiled up shirtless boyfriends. He knew there was no real threat there. After the show, they all went to dinner with the cameras. They had dessert sent to the table for her birthday, which she appreciated. After they hit the casinos, when she got back to the hotel, she realised she had lost her phone. At 4am, the hotel phone was ringing. Russell screamed, where have you been? I've been calling you all night. You've been out all night fucking the Chippendales. Here we go again, she thought. The girls and her flew back the next day and they celebrated her birthday with a large group of friends. She was nervous about seeing Russell, but he ended up surprising her. He got a beautiful suite at the Four Seasons. When they were getting ready for dinner, he handed her a card. The pre-written card said, Believe it or not, I know that I'm not always the easiest person in the world to get along with. There are times that I'm moody and no matter what you do or say, I'll find fault. Well, it's not you, it's me. I just can't understand what someone as wonderful as you could see in me and I get scared. I'm afraid you'll suddenly see all my flaws and fall out of love with me. I know it's no excuse, but those times that I'm the most difficult are probably the times I'm loving you the most and can't bear the thought of life without you. On the inside, Russell himself had written, This is the first time in my life that I was able to find a card that expresses exactly how I feel. I love you so much that I live in constant fear that I'm going to one day lose you. In truth, it's a bittersweet feeling to love one as much as I love you. Yes, I live in fear, but the love I feel for you is wonderful and something I had never experienced until I met you. Stay positive and never give up. We have so much to look forward to. He had signed it from him and the kids and added at the end, and God bless Dr. Sophie. It was everything Taylor had ever wanted to hear and she thought, we're going to turn this around. Now, there's so much to unpack here. First of all, that was all on a pre-written card. I have never seen a greeting card, A, with that much written on it, and B, I've never seen a greeting card so toxic. I genuinely question whether this is real or just what Taylor had wished had been on the card. It is just bizarre. And then his own message, which is again extremely toxic, he's basically saying that his terrible abusive behaviour is only because he loves her so much and she should basically put up with it because it's all he knows how to do. He's completely trying to manipulate her here because he knows she's pulling away and so he's trying to suck her back in and she completely falls for it. They all went out together with her friends and had a great time. Russell was dancing and kissing her and she felt butterflies. But then when they got back to the suite, Russell started in on her again. They were in bed kissing and Russell started asking her about the night in Vegas. He said she had bruises all over her back from fucking the Chippendales. He called her a whore. He punched her hard in the right eye. The pain was excruciating. She hit him back. She could tell something was very wrong with her eye. He said she was being dramatic and that she was fine. She went to the living room where Julie was asleep. She told her what happened. He came out and convinced her to go back to bed. She said, you really hurt me this time. He told her again she was fine and was just being a drama queen. She was devastated. She should have known better than to get pulled in again. The next morning, she had stabbing pains in her eye and couldn't look down or inward. She tried to pretend everything was fine, but after a while, she couldn't ignore it. Russell again said she was over-exaggerating. When her eye still hadn't bruised at the end of the day, she began to think maybe she was exaggerating. Russell was so masterful at convincing her of whatever he wanted her to believe that it was almost like his thoughts became her thoughts. She had just had LASIK surgery and went back to the doctor the next day. Russell came and told her what she should say. He even came into the examining room with her, giving her a warning look. The doctor said she needed flap repair as it was damaged. 
He asked how it happened. She said her daughter had kicked her in the eye. He asked what kind of shoes she wore. She said normal kid shoes, but that she'd been on a swing. The doctor was asking more questions, like where she had been, in front of or behind her. He said she should get her some new shoes. I think here the doctor is making it clear that he knew that this was from a punch. I mean, if anybody's going to know, he's going to know. The extent of her injury made her even more scared of Russell. Every time she had a follow-up appointment, Russell would leave work and come with her. The day of her surgery, he came again. He waited there until she woke up. He asked her what she told the doctor. She said she told him what he told her to. When they went to their therapist, Russell came up with a lie and told him Taylor had ran into his hand. Come on. She had already told him the story and he was smart enough not to believe Russell anyway. She was disgusted when their therapist told her Russell's elaborate lie. He thought it could lie his way out of any problem. After her surgery, she could see but still couldn't look down. She was finally able to get a CAT scan to assess the full damage. 40% of her orbital floor, the bone that supports the eye, had been fractured. Her muscle was trapped in the fracture and that's why she was having trouble looking down. She needed to have orbital reconstructive surgery. There was all the proof she needed that she had suffered at Russell's hands. She hadn't wanted to admit it, but things had been escalating for the past six months. And there, again, is that magic word, escalation. When Taylor got back from her appointment, she told Julie to pack her and Kennedy's things. She was finally leaving him. She was nervous as she moved around the house, thinking he was going to come home, even though she knew he was at the office. She felt sad, but she had to admit she couldn't make him be the man she needed. She was afraid of living with him and was worried about her finances, but she thought that even if life was hard by herself, it had to be better than this. They went to a hotel and Julian Taylor's mother joined them. She called Russell. She said it was over and he needed to move out. She told him about her eye. He stayed calm and said he would be out by tomorrow. She thought he had been expecting it. He knew he could go to jail for a year for what he had done to her. Then she called her friends. The housewives were on a filmed vacation that she wasn't invited to as they had told her they didn't want to film with her if it meant risking Russell's wrath. She had wanted them to know she left and she was safe but also wanted to hold herself accountable because she wanted to be sure there was no going back. The tone of their voices showed they doubted she'd really go through with it. He called her several times but she was done. She said she didn't want to speak to him. They stayed two extra days as she was nervous about returning home. She wasn't sure he'd really be gone but he was. All of his belongings were gone also. The hardest thing for her to get used to was sleeping alone. After all he had put her through, it was difficult for her to feel safe. She changed the locks but still lay awake, afraid that he would show up. Fortunately, he never threatened her during this time as many abusive men do. About two weeks later, he brought his son over to see Kennedy. She showed him the MRI of her eye. He started to weep. He said he had no idea how badly he had hurt her. He said he loved her more than he loved his children and that he couldn't believe he had done that to her. He said he didn't know how they got there or how things had gotten this bad. His reaction here makes me sick. He's only crying and saying he didn't know how badly he hurt her because he's again trying to manipulate her because she has left him. Of course he knew he hurt her. He punched her for God's sake. And she literally spent days telling him she was hurt. And then telling her he loves her more than he loves his children is just sick. Who says something like that? Totally trying to manipulate her. In July, she had her surgery. Russell walked into her room with Rose. She was scared as soon as she saw him. She thought he might kill her. Her mother and stepfather were both furious with him for what he had done to her. The mood was tense. He turned to her mother and apologised for what he did to Taylor. He said he felt awful and never meant to hurt her, but the show had pushed him to do that to her. Wow. So now he's also trying to manipulate her mother. 
Also, what a poor excuse. I'm sorry I hit your daughter, but the TV show made me do it. Her mother looked at him coldly. She said there was no excuse for what he had done. He said he knew she must hate him, but he loved Taylor and he was sorry. Her mother didn't say any more, but Dwight was angry. He asked why he was here. Russell turned to Taylor and said he wanted to stay and be with her. There was a part of her that wanted him to stay. She couldn't help thinking how handsome he looked. She wanted him back. But when she looked at her mom and Dwight, she realised it was inappropriate for her to allow him to be there when she was recovering from what he had done to her. She said no, but he was determined. He said he just wanted to stay there tonight. She could tell he was genuinely remorseful. I don't buy this. But she had images of him in the middle of the night smothering her while she was on morphine and unable to defend herself. He looked sad and nervous as he left, saying he just wanted to see her as he was worried about her. So can you imagine here that she still really wants to be with this guy and still really wants to him to stay with her in the hospital but at the same time she's terrified that he's going to smother her in the middle of the night when she's sleeping it's so messed up it was a very stressful time for her and russell as they both worried about what would happen when her injury hit the media she wasn't planning on pressing charges but he was worried the district attorney might and he'd end up in jail they were also trying to figure out their separation he wanted them to spend the holidays together. She said she wanted that too and didn't want to live her life without him, but that it was too dangerous to live with him. About once a week, she brought Kennedy to Russell's and they went to the park as a family and had dinner. Every time they said goodbye, she'd be devastated all over again. She would text him after saying how hard it was and how much she missed him. She was anxious about divorcing him because of all the threats he had made previously and the costs were going to be huge for her. She told Russell they could hire attorneys or then she would have to ask him to pay her attorney fees or he could just agree to these basic bills that needed to be paid for a year and then they would be done. He was open to the idea. It wasn't that the bills themselves were excessive, but Russell had put everything in her name after he filed for bankruptcy, even his Mercedes. This is why you always need to be responsible for your own finances, whether you are married or not. She suddenly realised that if he decided not to pay these bills, everything would fall on her and her credit would be destroyed. Exactly what happened to me. She was used to seeing him drop up to $2,000 on business dinners several times a week, so thought compared to that, the basics would be nothing. She showed him the numbers and he said it would be fine. Then the next day, he called and said they should get attorneys involved. Her heart sank. He loved to play the bully role. He knew she couldn't afford the attorney fees for as long as him. She was overwhelmed and scared. Then she got mad. She asked why and he said yes, why he had said yes yesterday, that she wanted him out of her life. He didn't have to give her a dime, but she wanted him to leave her and Kennedy alone. She wouldn't even ask him for child support. But of course, he didn't want that because then he wouldn't have any control over her. At about this time, she started to see a more vulnerable side of him that she hadn't before. The press had gotten a hold of what had happened and the other domestic violence story with his ex also came out. Then a news story came out that in filings connected to Russell's ex's application to change his visitation rights with his son, someone had seen him slap their son. She wasn't sure it was true, but it scared her. The media coverage was relentless. He was losing clients and unable to get new ones. She loved Russell and felt terrible for him. She wanted to help him. She made calls to friends to come up with three possible solutions. She said she would take care of Kennedy forever and he could focus on himself. She figured she still had the 14 million trust. Firstly, he could go to an in-house anger management treatment program, which would be paid for. Then he could become an advocate for men with anger management. She even offered to go on a PR tour with him so they could tell their story together. The second and third options involved going to Mexico for six months where their friend had a private resort while he figured out his next move. Or he could go to St. John Island to be a bartender for six months to simplify his life. The experience could be healing. 
but Russell wanted to stay and make a stand and she respected that. This is also bizarre to me. I think, yes, he needed anger management and he needed to just do a normal job, but this would never happen. He's way too narcissistic and I just cannot understand her having respect for him still, but again, that is just the cycle of abuse. In mid-August, Russell texts Taylor asking if she would meet the following Monday. She already had a meeting in the same place that day and when she showed up for that, she noticed that Russell's office had the door shut and the lights off, which was odd as he never missed a day at the office. When her meeting was done, she saw that Russell was still not in his office and he also wasn't in the conference room. She asked his colleague if he had seen him and he said he'd been trying to reach him over the weekend but never had back, her back. Taylor began to worry. She tried to contact him several times. She called several of their friends and no one had seen him. She even called their therapist. She picked Kennedy up from camp and continued to contact people they knew. She finally contacted their friend and business partner Francisco and he said he would meet her at Russell's house to see if he was there. Julie waited in the car with Kennedy. Russell's car was parked outside. They rang the buzzer. Russell's friend lived in the upstairs part of the house and he came out to see what was going on. He said he hadn't seen Russell since Friday and that his door had been locked since then. It was now Monday evening. Taylor knew in her heart something was wrong. Russell's friend pried open the bathroom window and climbed in while her and Francisco waited outside. Taylor could hardly breathe, her heart pounding. As soon as Russell's friend turned the corner into the bedroom, he began to scream. Oh my God, he's hung himself. He ran back outside frantically. Taylor ran out into the street and fell down screaming. Francisco helped her up and held her. She tried to stop screaming, but she couldn't. He called 911. Finally, Taylor couldn't scream anymore and she fell silent. Minutes later, the emergency services arrived. She told them not to remove Russell's body while Kennedy was still there. Throughout the evening, several of Taylor's friends and her mother arrived. All she could do was cry. Hours passed while they waited for the coroner. Eventually, they told her to go home. She couldn't sleep. She lay awake thinking about the last moments of Russell's life. She hated to think of him all alone, despondent, scared. She wished desperately that he had called her and let her help him. The media frenzy surrounding his death made it even harder for Taylor to moan. The phone never stopped ringing. Taylor was overwhelmed. She didn't leave the house for a week until it was time to plan his funeral. She was determined his service would be one of celebration rather than a sombre affair. She struggled with what to tell Kennedy about her father's death. She already had such unhappy memories of her father. She often spoke about how he screamed at her and her mother. She now hopes those memories will fade and she can mostly remember the wonderful experiences she had with him. So many of Taylor's friends told her that when they heard of Russell's death, they were certain it would be followed by news that her and Kennedy's bodies had also been found. She felt very grateful to be alive. The statistics suggest that many abusers who end their own lives choose to take their families with them. Russell had said before he was afraid he would kill her. She hadn't realised how much of a possibility that was. His suicide made her finally face the extent of the mental illness he was struggling with throughout their marriage. Dr Sophie said he had gone far too long without treatment. She had even more sympathy for him now. Dr Sophie said they should view the end of his life as the end of his suffering. While Russell was at peace, Taylor's life was becoming more difficult due to the state of his finances. She was now viewed as responsible for his legal woes. There was even a 1.5 million lawsuit he faced, which had named Taylor directly. Kennedy was also involved as part of a stipulation where they could go after her trust. At the time, Russell had threatened to beat her if she didn't sign the document. This is just one of the many business disputes she was now facing. She also made some other alarming discoveries. 
His wallet contained 10 debit cards at 10 different banks, but all of the accounts were empty. There was no 14 million trust. There was no money at all. And he faced $200,000 of death for that month alone. He had pawned his Rolex for $9,000. He had $7,000 on his nightstand with a $25,000 bill for his son's private school. No suicide note was found. Court documents she found in relation to his ex-wife were chilling. It detailed the exact kind of bullying, paranoia and violence that he had subjected her to. She had also been a victim of his violence. In the weeks after his death, it seemed she would constantly wake up to news she didn't want to hear. She had so many conflicting emotions about him every day that she sometimes thought she was going crazy. She was still dealing with the aftermath of the abuse and couldn't forget his behaviour towards her. Sometimes she would still look behind her thinking he was there because he had so conditioned her to fear the possibility that he could attack her at any time. She also felt angry that he hadn't gotten the help he needed, but she also knew he had to go. But she still loved him and would have stayed with him forever if he could have gotten his violent temper under control. She had a feeling of tremendous guilt because she knew now there was no hope of healing or reconciling. One night her friend told her, You can wallow in this for the rest of your life, destroy your life and destroy Kennedy's life, or you can put on your big girl pants and go out there and do something about it. It changed everything for her. It was a relief to have been given permission to move on. She started to focus on advocacy and education around the issue of domestic violence. She wanted to be a normal person again and to hear about her friends' lives. Her main goal now is that one day her daughter will say, my mom had her own problems and she made a lot of bad choices, but in the end, she did everything she could to help other people. And that is the story of Taylor Armstrong. I know that got super dark at the end. Um, It's a sad story. I hate the thought of anybody killing themselves. I've had it in my own family and it's truly, truly horrendous. Um... Obviously, he had a lot of problems. I personally don't believe an abusive person can be fixed. That's just a person, personal thought of mine. I don't think it can happen. Um, but I still find it sad that he did that. And I think it's... I don't say that suicide is cowardly. I don't think that for a, a second. But I think in a case like that, where he is doing that because he is drowning in debt, but then he also knows that his wife and even his daughter are going to take the fall for it. That's just very cowardly to me. Um, so yeah, it's a very dark story. Um, I put a trigger warning because it's got a lot of triggering moments in that. And I would suggest just, you know, getting outside, getting some fresh air, listening to some good music, Beyonce Renaissance. What an album. Let's just say that. Um, watch your favorite tv show do something um but yeah i always find that that's a good way to um pick myself up after a particularly dark episode but anyways we move on um hopefully i'll get another episode out to you in the next couple of weeks as i said i've had a lot of stuff going on and my job is really crazy so I'm going to try my best to do as much as I can I'll keep you updated on how I'm doing with my own mental health and my new medication I'm kind of excited about it so we'll see how that goes Um, and I hope you guys all have a great few weeks as I said in the beginning it's almost September OMG but once again reach out to me if you need any help 
and contact the hotline.org for professional help all the links will once again be in the bio and i will see you guys next time thank you for listening